Hello and welcome to Switzer Investing. I'm Peter Switzer. Thanks for joining me. And on the program tonight, I catch up with Rudy Philippek Van Dyke to flesh out this question. You know, is this stock market of ours trying to bottom or is it something that's going to happen later on down the track? So far, I've talked to Shane Oliver from AMP. I've talked to Michael Knox from Morgans and Rudy. And neither of the, those three people believe the bottoming process is actually happening right now. They think another leg down will actually happen sometime down the track. But they do see stocks rebounding later in the year. We'll catch up with Rudy, and he also looks at some of the stocks he thinks looks like really good value right now. And then I catch up with Kelly Ma from Sage Capital, portfolio manager there. And Kelly likes Domino's and she likes REA, but she too thinks there's going to be a few more challenges, particularly after reporting season. And then finally, Helen Tarrant, a property expert, looks at why commercial property is looking like a really good deal right now. That's the program. Let's kick off now with Rudy Philippek Van Dyke from FN Arena. Well, joining me now from FN Arena, the founder of FN Arena, is Rudy Philippek Van Dyke. How are you, Rudy? I'm fine, Peter. I hope you are too. Yeah, I am. And it's just, it comes at a pretty special time where lots of people would be wondering whether what we've seen recently is either the beginning uh, or maybe even the middle of a bottoming process or is a false dawn. And I thought this is a great topic for you, you and I to start off on because essentially, even though we've been great friends for a long time, there are certain differences that we're both well aware of. Uh, I tend to be a little bit more optimistic than you, though you are optimistic, but you are you show caution within your optimism as well. And both of us use the history that we've been involved in mm. studying markets and studying companies. But I also thought it probably be worthwhile checking out the character of Belgians, because you are you are Belgian, aren't you? I am definitely. And and, and so I've gone to the the source of all knowledge, namely Google, and it tells me that Belgians tend to be tolerant, flexible, modest, and open-minded. That sounds like you to a T. And value, we like we like good food. Yes, they value privacy, enjoy a safe and comfortable life, work hard, and are self-disciplined. And that's. That safety comes in sometimes in your view that you won't jump on board an optimistic run too early, which is pretty good for investing as well. Belgians tend to be very involved in their communities and government. And, and I thought this is, you'd like this one. This came from one of those sort of travel websites. What are Belgian guys like? I'm sure that was a question that, uh, well, I might ask the question, who might have asked that question? Because nowadays we're, we're, we're in a new world. Belgian people are generally known to be polite, softly spoken, and extremely well-mannered. In fact, men will even rise sometimes when a woman enters the room to show respect or stand on public transport until a woman is seated. R Rudy, this is you all over. Did you write this about yourself? Must have been. Must have been, Peter. <laughs> must have been my ghostwriter. <laughs> so I thought it might be good for me to share the inner workings of, of the Rudy I know with the, the public persona which, of course, is always very gentle, softly spoken, and well-considered. Um, here, here. <laughs> All right. So um, let me ask this question. Uh, we saw the U.S. a very big rise last week. 
but we've seen big rises followed by big falls. Um, but the, the NASDAQ was up 8.5%. Mm. Uh, our market's been positive for, what, three or four days now? Um, do you think a bottoming process is trying to happen? I'm not saying it is. I guess you to comment on that later. But do you think bottoming is trying to happen right now? I, I like I like the careful way you you in which you uh, choose your words, Peter, because uh, you, you're obviously trying to formulate a sentence to which I cannot just simply take a gun and just put some holes in there. <laughs> um, I, I in a broad sense. I, um, from a top-down perspective, uh, you look at the, the macro picture. What is actually happening on the on the on the above us? Oh. I find it almost inconceivable that this would be the bottom in this market. And uh, the reasons for that are, are quite simple. Uh, central bankers are still uh, tightening, and and historically, uh, in particular, when they're accelerating the tightening. Historically, uh, markets find that very difficult to, to cope with. Uh, but the extra complication here is that we are facing a, a, an increasingly difficult, and I would say extremely tricky reporting season that is coming towards us. And uh, investors should not be surprised if, if some of their companies come out with a big swinging surprise. And that can, that can work uh, both ways. We, for example, on the day today, we have a, a market update by um, Collins, Collins Foods. And yesterday, we had one by uh, Medcash. And in both cases, the share price has responded quite favorably, in particular in Collins Foods. So everyone who owns those shares uh, would be very, very happy today. But um, we've also seen in, in over the past week or so, uh, in particular, some of the um, uh, smaller cap mining companies uh, updating the market. And those share prices have absolutely been shellacked. I mean, um, down 20% is, is almost standard here. Uh, and that to me, those two extremes, they, they, uh, they, are, uh, they pretty much illustrate the, the challenges that are now ahead for investors in, in what's coming. And it's very difficult to predict which company will surprise to the upside and which one will surprise the downside. So coming back to your question, it is well possible that the markets are trying to bottom here, but I'd be very, very surprised if this is the bottom and this is the end of the process. Um, I couldn't help but noticing there was a little bit of an attempt to, uh, to have a, a, an earlier part of your question as well. And I do think to, come to, to get that earlier part of your question, I think we might be halfway at best here in, in this year's process. And um, I can easily refer back to uh, a recent um, update on matters by um, analysts at uh, Merrill Lynch, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch in the US. And they took a leave from, uh, from more than a century of, uh, of examples and averages that you, can, that you can establish. And they basically said, if this, turns out an average bear market, then it will end in late October this year. Well, I'm glad you said that because that's exactly what I've been <clears throat> saying to people that after, you know, you and I often have uh, laughed and talked about, you know, uh, selling May and come back uh, on St. Ledger's Day, which is about mid-set. 
And I, I've been arguing that probably the time to expect the market to start showing some real positivity will be around October. And, and I'm also factoring the, the possibility that, you know, Putin may well have enough of this war by around that time, fingers crossed. I, I figured China would be out of its lockdown more by October than, you know, July. So putting it all together, I thought the likelihood of seeing inflation dissipate from those cost reasons could be starting to show up by around October. And the market would love that. And, and also, Rudy, correct me if I'm wrong, but we often see selling before June 30. Then we see a little bit of buying in July. I guess those, those naughty people getting their tax losses then buy their stocks back at lower prices that they've often created by <laughs> selling them down. Um, and the tax office is looking at that this year. Yes. But, but then, but then we, we find that when we get to um, um, uh, September, August, that can be really tricky for the market, mm. can't it? But then again, then from October, November, boom, we go off again. So it seems to me that's that's a, a narrative that may easily play out, provided we get good inflation or better inflation numbers, and then we think central banks will be easing up on their rate rises. Is that a story that you think is potentially believable? I, I'm hoping for a scenario like that. To be honest, um, I'm, I'm hoping that we that we are experiencing the the peak in in uh, central bank uh, dominance over markets, hmm. and I'm hoping that uh, within within weeks or if not a few months, that we we are seeing uh, the early which uh, withdrawals or deflation in inflation numbers, so to speak, because if those numbers stay high. Uh, that would be very, very bad news for, for, yeah. for equity markets. Uh, we do not want inflation numbers to keep on printing eight point something or seven point something numbers. Um, that is that is pretty bad for equity markets. And and we should we should we should realize that as equity investors. I mean, there is something that we don't have control over. Central bankers are doing their best, but they don't really control uh, supply, which is which is very important for for inflation, and they don't control the war either. Um, so they're doing their best at the margins, and um, so we, sh we should all be hoping that the scenario that you just painted that, that um, is is logical and hopefully plausible. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So so we, we both ag agree that there's potential for a December quarter rebound, provided the inflation number. And I've been saying to people, you're just going to have to watch the economic data, and and therefore what we're seeing now is, I think. And look, Louis, I've never really thought about the dynamics of a bottoming process because people like you and me often talk about it in terms of numbers. We see what's going on in terms of companies selling off, companies being bought, indexes going down. But when you think about it, a bottoming process is increasingly more people thinking that this is that the stocks that have been smashed are starting to look like good value. And these people are early movers. They may be long-term investors who say, well, uh, I might be I might be buying zero at 75. And if it drops to 70, I know it's going to be 100 in a year's time. Therefore, I'm prepared to cop the loss. But there are a lot of other fund managers who will never do that because they're accountable to their to their investors on a much shorter-term basis. But it's that toing and froing between is it time to buy or timing sell to, to, to sell that explains the bottoming process? Peter, while I agree with that uh, with, with that assessment, I, I think the extra complication this year is, um, and I know this because uh, I've heard that quite a number of fund managers are um, 
nervous about what corporate profits might look like next year. Um, and that complicates the process this year a little bit because a stock that might look cheap or attractive this year, but if then the corporate profits disappoint next year, that might become cheaper. And that that complicates the matters a little bit uh, this year. Yeah, but isn't it interesting, really? Because in many ways, it just gets down to the, the, the decisions by central bankers, how tough are they going to be? And the tougher they are, the slower that the growth will be in 2023. Mm-hmm. But if they engineer a soft landing, you might may well see 2023 being the year where growth starts to accelerate over the year, and then they need to raise interest rates in 2024, as a, and that could will be the end of the cycle. Because we, we, what, what, historically what we see is that stock markets actually rise during the early phases of interest rate increases. It's, the, it's the nearly the, the second leg of interest rate rises that invariably causes the, the crash of the market. Yes, and, and but obviously this this time is different. Uh, oh, you said that were really. You said this time is different. Yes, historically, <laughs> I've always been scared to say that. And I totally agree. I this totally time agree. is different because we are we are we are hiking. Well, we the central bankers they are hiking okay. in a slowing economy this time, and and also um, we are we are only hiking because because inflation is running away from us. Otherwise, uh, central bankers would not be doing it. I have to say there was also the the other scenario, Peter, in that that's quite a popular scenario among some of the analysts and, and economists, in that the RBA and the, and the Federal Reserve Bank and the ECB, they're all going to be hiking this year. And uh, next year, there will be a cutting, cutting, cutting rates yeah. again. Uh, and it might, be, might become uh, quite quickly upon us. Yeah. Um, so, if anything, um, that almost uh, is, is a very good indicator for a lot of volatility. We will go up and down a lot probably over the next uh, 16 months uh, because the, the, the picture can change so quickly. And, and hopefully, uh, when, when, when they are hiking uh, into year end, hopefully uh, inflation is responding to the hiking because that means they can also confidently start uh, cutting again uh, a few months later. It's, there are so many scenarios, and we always know that economics is never straightforward. There's always people on one side of the argument and the other side of the argument. And, you know, from my point of view, Rudy, if there wasn't a war and China didn't go into lockdown, I was expecting this to be a, a really big boom year. If you look at those charts, I don't know if you've ever seen Shane Oliver's AMP's uh, Economic Activity Tracker, how it shows how economies boom out of lockdowns. And I was kind of presuming that would be 2023. Then 2024, you'd have to raise interest rates. I'm oh, sorry, 2023, you have to raise interest rates really, really hard. Not this year. But because of the cost uh, push inflation, the central banks have been forced to move probably earlier than they needed to. But anyway, that's all economics. Just forget that. Let's now move to some stocks because a lot of people always love to hear us talking about stocks. I want to talk about Tyro. Now, to me, Tyro is a good company. It's it's. it's Everywhere you go, and you're a man who occasionally goes into the odd pub, you, you see Tyro machines mm. everywhere. And at one stage, it was a very, very popular company. Mm. And now it just can't seem to do anything right. And it seems to me a tech company that will eventually, someone say, oh, gee, we've probably been too hard on it. But do you think Tyro's problem has also been made harder by the marrying of Afterpay to Square? Because Square, in a sense, is a bit of a rival to Tyro. 
Oh yes, absolutely, absolutely, and I and I suspect um, Dairo um, is basically regarded as a little bit of, as an alternative to the banks, yeah. uh, which they obviously have tried to develop. I, I guess they had a few own goals over over the, their short existence as a listed company. Uh, at some stage, they had a, they had frozen terminals to deal with. Um, and of course, they 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 came to the market as as, as a fast grower, and then um, disappointed quite a number of times. I guess investors have a have a memory when, when it comes to that, and they do. They have probably put Tyro in in the in the basket of of, of young upcoming technology stocks. Mm-hmm. And you know how the market works, Peter. Uh, I mean, once you have a label and and the market doesn't like it, you you will be sold, and questions will be asked later. Um, that that's just that's just how the market works. I mean, Tyro would yeah. by far not be the only um, beaten down technology stock on, on the market that, that most likely um, has a has a more rosy existence in front of it than is now indicated by the share price. Yeah, and, and it's always when you got that kind of negativity to, to a sector like tech, and you've got they're in the short seller list as well. It starts building up understandable reasons why some people would say too hard basket. Mm. When it takes off, maybe in a year's time, I'll get back on board. But at the moment, I'm out of here, baby. And a lot of buy now, pay later companies in that situation. But I want to go to two companies I'm sure you've got a handle on. And I only got into these companies because various of great quality people who come on my program of your caliber have brought them up and have made the point that these are companies with quite internationally competitive advantage technology. One is Megaport, and Mm. no one ever tells me that they haven't got an internationally significant competitive advantage, but it was about a $16 stock, and it's now it's like a $5 stock. And another one is another one called Ordinate, which I think Mm. you've talked about in the past as well. And and in both cases, we're talking about companies that may well not be making profits, but certainly that they don't have any clear-cut competitors, they're really highly regarded in this sector, but because they're in tech companies and probably because some of them are insured, they really have been smashed. But it seems to me that the kind of companies, and this is what I'm going to ask you a question, are these the kind of companies that a very tolerant long-term investor could, not should, but we're not giving advice here, could have confidence that eventually <laughs> they will come good? Well, let's let's get let's get back to the to the style of this conversation. Um, yeah. You 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 rightfully said, uh, amongst all the Belgianisms that came across, <laughs> that I'm I'm a more of a cautious investor, and I, I'm definitely in 2022. I am I have presented myself as a cautious investor. Well, one of the things I think uh, I did correctly this year is I I removed all um, excessive risk of of my portfolio insofar. It was already there because I'm, I'm a cautious investor on the bad of times as well. I didn't have excessive risk. But what investors should understand, and, and, and they may have caught up a little bit too late on that one, is that when the, when the market environment changes from, from extremely bullish to gradually more and more bearish, and then we obviously we get the drawdown, is that investors start looking at, at investments in a different way and they start, they start upping their requirements. And one of the one of the key requirements in 2022 is that that you are profitable as a company. Um, the companies you just mentioned, they have big debt as well. The, the companies you just mentioned, they are not profitable. So that means that the share price has no support, and it, it basically is anyone's guess how low it can go. 
the second requirement, uh, which might alleviate a little bit if you're not profitable, is that you that you generate a lot of cash out of your operations. Now, between the two companies you mentioned, Alternate is then definitely of a better proposition than, than is Megaport. Megaport has the disadvantage of being not profitable, being requiring a lot of uh, capital. So it still has to get capital from elsewhere because it, it invests more than it, than it generates in cash. Yeah. And then it has, it has had a few, um, um, let's call it operational hiccups. Uh, not, not major, but for a growth company, that's, that's, that's bad enough to, to set the share price back. So I'd, I'd, be, I'd be cautious at this point in time, but just for the reason that um, on, on the theoretical sense, if they have to come out in August and say, listen, guys, um, some of our customers have held back a little bit and they've postponed their, 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 trans, their, their transformation by, by a few more months, then the, the share price probably gets globbled again, uh, even though that's not, it's not under their control. But they're still in a position that they, they're not profitable. They won't be profitable anytime soon, and they will still require fresh capital. So the market doesn't like that that, that type of investment at this point in time. Um, just to throw something in, one two of the few um, technology stocks that, I, that I've kept in my portfolio this year are Iris and Technology One, and and you can see the difference. I mean, of course, the bull share price have been weak as well, but they've by by far not been been as weak as the companies that you've mentioned because they're profitable, both of them, and they're also quite reliable and and predictable and forecastable in what in what lies ahead for the future. And that's more the type of lower risk. Um, assets that that the market requires, that the market likes in 2022, and of course, the, the more this process goes on, we still have we're still battling high inflation, we're still battling uh, falling share prices, uncertain future, possible recessions. That's not an environment where that's not not an environment where investors will happily snap up Megaport, Tyro, or um, um, or Ordinate. I mean, um, but what I what I would say. Is that and this this is an ideal time for investors. If you like that type of uh, future forward looking company, by all means put them on your radar. Keep uh, investigate them, research them, have a look at what they, what exactly is happening. Whether you like management, whether you like the prospects. I mean, I for example, I would definitely like um, Ordinate um, because this bear market will ultimately give you the opportunity to buy those stocks at, at very cheap levels. Even if it's, that's not yesterday or today, that might still be the case in, in 12 months from now. Uh, share prices can still be cheap by then. Um, I mean, a, a company, as you know, that I, I like very, very much is ProMedicus, which is which is of a complete different nature. And, uh, it's, and I still think that's one of the highest quality uh, companies we have in the growth space. But I, at this point in time, also no longer own that stock because I still think we can, we probably will be able to, to purchase at much lower levels. In particular, if this market uh, goes crazy again to the downside, uh, there is no natural protection for those small cap uh, companies that have a lot of promise and, and high valuations. Okay. One last question before we, uh, we say farewell to the, the great Belgian of Belgium. Uh, but really, what's the one company now that you think looks like good value that is worth buying now? And then, you know, it's not going to take long 
to see you know, a reasonable return? What's that one company? You know, um, it's, 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 it's a very tricky question because um, uh, there was, the reporting season is, uh, is not upon us yet. And, and for a lot of companies, we can only guess because we, we don't really know what's, what's coming towards us. Um, let, let, let me maybe um, respond to, to this in, in, in a different way. Instead of trying to pick a company, I think uh, there is a scenario, and both you and I don't like it, uh, but it is possible. It is possible that inflation sticks around for longer than you and I now think, and I would, than, we, than we would like. And we, this out of our control, and we don't really know. Now, maybe as just as a, a little bit of a protection and a little bit of insurance against such a scenario, investors might uh, add some uh, gold exposure to their portfolio. Not gold miners, because that's specific company risk, but a little bit of gold through an ETF or so. Just have a little bit of protection that in case inflation refuses to come down or as quickly as the market is hoping for, then that gold price should give you a little bit of compensation for the losses you're, you're suffering in all your other, uh, uh, or most of the other stocks that you own. And... Um, and because gold also in, in, in what's coming, what's forthcoming, it doesn't carry uh, earnings risk, uh, rising prices and shortages of staff. It doesn't affect brilliant. <laughs> and the fair point is this, Rudy. The fair point is this, that if you don't have any gold in your portfolio, having a bit of gold in your portfolio is not necessarily a bad idea. No, absolutely good? not. And, and treat it as an insurance. I, I do as an insurance. Uh, I mean, don't make it like huge unless you you really have a have a, a dark view on, on the outlook for inflation but a little bit always there just as an insurance policy I think it it, it suits the mind a little bit and it's 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 like having a, a fire insurance on your house you hope that you don't need it but uh, it's it's nice to have on the side yeah and even if you're wrong you're still holding a reasonably valuable asset Rudy Philip Heck van Dyke thanks for joining us okay Peter Well, joining us now is Kelly Ma from Sage Capital. She's a portfolio manager there, which means she's watching the market very closely and looking for stocks that look like great value. Thanks for joining us, Kelly. Thanks for having me, Peter. So this market at the, at the moment, what are you thinking about? Well, it's uh, definitely interesting times, you know, um, to use the overword, overused uh, word, you know, we don't have any precedent for this uh, market at the moment with a global, coming out of a global pandemic and Russia-Ukraine war, and then massive supply uh, chain shocks and um, the oil price skyrocketing. Uh, so, um, yeah, it's it's strange times. We're, we're navigating... Um, the markets as best we can, and you know, obviously, inflation is the uh, the word of the uh, of the year. Um, you know, we haven't had these levels of inflation since uh, the the 70s, and um, and unless central banks get on top of it, it um, you know, the outlook globally isn't isn't good. So. Um, and we saw last night um, central bankers um, once again reiterating that they will do everything they possibly can to get inflation under control, which is great for the equity market long term, but short term, um, that means obviously interest rates going up 
and uh, mathematically uh, that's uh, that tends to be bad for stocks in the short term particularly high growth stocks with long duration cash flows yeah um let's let's just like the, the problem i find with anything when we talk about stocks is that our focus is terribly short term because you know no one wants to buy a stock for that looks like good value with a dollar when it's been ten dollars and then see it drop to 50 50 yeah. cents and, but that's a, that's a short-term analysis are you are you looking at this and saying okay for 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 most of this year we're, we're probably going to be under pressure but ideally if the ukraine war ends sometime this year and china gets out of its pandemic lockdown problems sometime this year it could set us up for a a surprisingly good 2023 is that an unreasonable optimistic scenario if those two things happen well i mean i think we could be the equity market could be in for a, a decent 2023 even if those two things don't happen um uh, but it depends what happens this year um and uh, looking at where the markets are now, um, obviously the PE ratio, you know, markets US off 20%, we're off sort of 10% uh, so far this year. And um, we, uh, you know, PE ratios have uh, compressed. Um, but the, the thing now, though, is that we need to see um, earnings um, take a step down. The, the, the earnings and margins out there in the market are still very uh very optimistic and um you know many many of the consensus numbers is factoring in that the the, the good times from COVID that a lot of companies experienced um retailers for example that mm. their elevated margins are, are going to continue on um at, at a, at, and not come back to where they were before COVID. in some cases that that'll that'll happen and but it, it, across the market not just retail margins are still too high we feel and so we are looking at um, the E coming down, and uh, and I think that will there's going to be a bit of um, maybe bloodshed in August when companies report here in Australia, and uh, and the market may um, you know be very weak. But uh, by the end of this year, we may reach um, you know if if earnings come down to a, a more realistic level, we may be in for a great 23, but there may be some pain first. Yeah. So you're kind of saying that if you want to be a buyer for the long term, it may well pay to wait to see reporting season. Yes, I, I, and, I think so. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, and, and historically, correct me if I'm wrong, but when we see a company report better than expected uh, at reporting season, it, it, it invariably, provided the outlook is, is statement is pretty good, you, t you tend to see a bit of positive momentum for that company, even if you miss the first, the first bounce that might happen on, on the day they announce. It tends to get, have a lot of positive momentum going forward, doesn't it? Yes. This time around, though, um, particularly um, some stocks like retailers, uh, just because calling those out because. Uh, no one, no one's interested in retailers at the moment because everyone's, um, you know, everyone's looking down the the barrel of of rising um, labour costs, um, rising inflation, um, uh, COVID, you know, comping really high COVID um, goods uh, retail sales, 
And uh, retailers are going to come out with, with, with great results this August because the consumer is still spending. Um, but I don't think anyone's going to care because everyone everyone's focusing on well, what happens in in a year or uh, you know in 23 when um, 500 uh, billion dollars of of mortgages roll off um, uh, fixed fixed loans. Uh, so that is going to be a big crunch time for um, for spending and, and retail in particular in 23. Yeah. Um, okay. So given given the fact that you know, in a, in a perfect world, as a, as a portfolio manager, you want to buy cheap and see the stock prices rise over time. Yeah. Um, are you able to to take a long term position, or because ultimately you're accountable to your investors on a more, you know, at least half year basis, um, maybe even less than that? Is it difficult for you to take a a, a long term position on a company that really has been smashed? Uh, well, no, because we do that um, all the time. Um, I mean, yes, we. Uh, the nature of our, our fund is we, we're quant uh, and fundamental and we're always adjusting for new information in the portfolio and adjusting positions. But um, an example um, of where we're taking a longer-term view is uh, we've been um, buying dominoes recently. Mm -hmm. I mean, it has um, more than half. It's gone from $160 um, to 67 at the moment or thereabouts, and uh, you know that, that they've got some pain coming. They've got they've, they're not um, at all immune from um, you know they've got rising labour costs, they've got rising uh, you know energy costs, they've got rising food costs, a, a lot of uh, a lot of things to to fight. However, we we think that they're going to navigate their. Um, uh, you know, and be able to push price increases through better than most. They've got the, a good scale, um, but, you know, compared to a lot of their competitors, they've got the tech, they've got a great management team and still have global growth. And um, and looking at it, it putting in a, um, a risk-free rate, sorry to get technical, but, uh, you know, doing a, a DCF on the long-term cash flows, um, there is a margin of safety there where you kind of go, well, okay, even if they report in, in August and, and uh, you know, it, it's looking, um, you know, disappointing and, you know, they talk to long-term, uh, you know, the next year being very tough, um, the valuation um, is still, um, there's still a margin of safety there. We go over the long-term, this thing is still going to grow and, um, and pizza's a great uh, place to be in a recession. <laughs> if we're going into a recession, uh, you know, those fancy Uber Eats orders will drop like a stone, but people will go and still eat their dominoes. Yeah, good point, good point. Is there a tech company that you think um, has been over-smashed? Uh, well, one, one that I like um, is uh, REA, um, um, which is, you know, plat you know as we, we yeah. everyone knows uh, of REA, um, that it's been smashed and people are worried about, you know, listings um, rolling over and the property market um, tanking. Uh, and there, yeah, that's one that's been absolutely hammered. And, you know, but they have, um, they've got great uh, product um uh, rollout coming through. They've got a lot of price. They, I mean, they're the leader in the market, so their pricing power is huge. Mm -hmm. They've been, um, they've got their price rises locked in for next year already, and they've got a really flexible cost base. So even if Armageddon happens and uh, listings completely roll over, um, and you know they struggle to get some price increases, say in twenty four. Um, they're because they're not a fixed cost uh, with la large fixed cost. 
based business, they can cut my back on marketing, they can cut back on some of maybe their tech spend and, and still achieve decent uh, margins. And uh, history shows that with that one, um, the time to buy it is when everyone thinks that the, uh, the, the, the you know, real estate listings are going to completely tank and over the long term, um, you'll make good money. Yeah, because when the house prices fall, um, you often find people trying to sell their places to try and beat the, the further falls. So the actual listings can actually increase during a time of, of falling prices. This was explained to me by the, the CEO of Domain, who clearly has a vested interest in, in, in saying, well, the market probably is exaggerating how bad it can be for us because of that reason. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. So, um, and people, you know, when it's, I guess there's more more competition to um, to to sell your house when there's a lot a lot of um, you know when when buyers are a bit more reluctant, you you may be um, you know more willing to pay up for the um, extra uh, you know pro promotional ad to be at the top of the the screen and things like that. So they get. Know, yield they talk to yield basically um, premium premium pricing for some of their ads so um, yeah it's a with a longer term view not saying it's going to um, you know skyrocket by the end of this year but with a longer term view that one is um, it's a great company Good and it kind of fits the quality home. tech story doesn't it because they they do make profits um, and, and I guess you know car sales fits into the same kind of category they're not probably as as safely as, as REA does. That's that's right, and um, yeah, we're we're not a huge fan of of the recent uh, you know um, buying out uh, Trader Interactive. Um, yeah. Skeptical on on uh, the timing and the price and the, the motivations for that. Um, and uh, yeah, so we're probably yeah we're definitely more keen on REA at this point. Well, one interesting one I'd like to ask whether you've thought about is a company like Tyro. Now, yesterday, he, the CEO uh, resigned to go to Star. I thought the CEO was pretty well on death row anyway, considering what's happened to Tyro anyway. So it was a pretty, pretty fortunate exit for Robbie Cook to, to go to Star. But to me, I, I suspect Tyro is, is seen as a buy now, pay later company, but it's not a buy now, pay later company at all. And the, and the share price is unbelievably low. Have you guys run your eye over a company like Tyro and, and made a decision either way? Uh, so we, and I had a feeling you were going to ask me about Tyro. Um, my, my colleague is the expert on that one. We have uh, in the past um, been both long and short Tyro. Um, at the moment, we, we don't have a position there, but um, we were closely watching when... Um, Robbie Cook um, resigned, and um, there, there may be an opportunity there, but um, yeah, it's not one that we're act, you know, actively have a position in at the moment. Is that because the whole tech payment space is like, and this is the thing I find interesting, Kelly, and you, you've been watching markets for a long time. It doesn't matter how good the company may well be or what the potential might be. If the market just doesn't like it, it it's just difficult to, to take a position. Uh, because the market might not like it for two or three years, despite the fact the company actually does okay. Yeah, yeah, and um, you know, belief, you know, the industry structure, you know, can you know plays a big part. And if there's a belief that margins are going to be um, compre being compressed over time, uh, then you know that's a hard, hard uh, fight to to win if you're a company playing in that industry. So. Mm -hmm. um, 
right. there's a price for everything. And so maybe we should uh, follow your footsteps, Peter, and buy some uh, Tyro. We'll see. Oh, no, I'm, not, I'm not recommending it, but still, <laughs> it just seems to me everywhere, everywhere I go, and I'm going to say, I, I have got a position in Tyro. That's why I'm, I'm interested in it. But the yes. bottom line also is you know, every time I go to a pub or a cafe, I see a Tyro. Yes. Um, and it just seems to me that it is, it's a company that probably has a future. Even a takeover target seems to me, you know, why wouldn't a, a, a bank think, well, you know, this is a, a competitor that's now unbelievably cheap. And we often do see this, don't we, that companies that had potential and the market really smashes them, they then all of a sudden you wake up one morning, the headline is, you know, takeover target and, and so on and so forth. Yes, oh, look, totally. And it'd be interesting to see what happens with um, M&A activity from here. You know, um, there's there's been some a big changes in the cost of debt and, and the you know market and outlook economically in general. So um, in the last few months, so you know, six months ago, you know, would have been saying that you know it's great. Uh, there's going to be a lot of M&A activity. Um, this year but you know it's uh, i think uh the the numbers have to be revisited and there's a lot of investment bankers re uh, running their rulers over deals they thought might have looked attractive um a few months ago it may not look quite as attractive today be interesting to see interesting times Kelly. thanks for joining us and good luck going forward thanks peter see you next time bye Well, with further interest rate rises imminent and the cost of living increasing, many Aussies are understandably struggling and worried about how they will continue to afford living comfortably. However, one lesser known investment method is actually putting more than several thousand dollars a year back into the pockets of everyday Aussies. And it's not what you might think. We're talking to Helen Tarrant from Unicorn Commercial Property. Helen, thanks for joining us. Nice to be here. So, Helen, just before we start talking about, you know, this other way of, you know, making money out of property, what's your take? You've, you've seen predictions of 30% falls in house prices. Do you think that this is on the cards or do you think it's a little bit uh, over the top? I think that 30% is probably a little bit off the top, over the top. I think um, I think somewhere between 10 to 20 is probably expected. And I think that's maybe what the market is expecting. I think if it went to 30 uh, people go into a bit of a panic and, and and start going basically going fire sailing fire sailing because um they feel like their property have all their wealth wiped out yeah and i think it's fair to say that and the, and the guy who's most famous for the 30 percent call nowadays is chris joy one thing one thing chris doesn't say he doesn't say over what time period so i guess if if house prices fell 30 percent over a three-year period it wouldn't be as bad as if it was 30 percent in the space of six months. That's true. The last time that something like this happened, like about 10 years ago, what we found, what I found was that the, a lot of properties in the top end of the market fell by quite significant. But at that time, top end of market in on a North Shore in Sydney was like five or six mil, right? Today, that same house is probably 10 mil. To, yeah. to, to 11 mil, right? And compared to and the houses that didn't fall, or maybe only fell 10%, was properties out west that was anywhere from 700 to 900,000. So yeah. it depends on where you are and and the fall, because when you're buying a $10 million house, you know, like 30% fall um, is quite significant. Yeah. Uh, but also, there's not a lot of people that can afford to upgrade. 
Yeah, but, but also we always forget that when a place falls, say, 3 million on 10, it's probably risen four or five on five in the, in the preceding years. And, and when you make reference to 10 years ago, I remember, you know, the great properties at Palm Beach in New South Wales, some of those fell 30, 40% during the GFC, but they quickly rebounded as well. Yeah, I think a lot of them have and gone on to be even more. Right? Yeah. When we look around, um, only recently I was talking to a client of mine and they've recently bought into Noosa, right, at 5.5 million for a house that still needs renovations, a million and a half of renovations. But um, somewhere down the road, a fully renovated house was selling for 10. And you think, oh, wow, I'm sitting here in Sydney thinking, wow, you're buying a Noosa for five and a half mil. Yeah, well, but during the GFC, Noosa yeah. properties really became cheap. So I guess... There are properties that are very, uh, property areas that are very volatile and others kind of hold around a, a mean or average price. But let's get go to what you're looking at now. Um, your name of your business is Unicorn Commercial Properties. So you clearly like the, the space of commercial property. What are you seeing there and what kind of people are getting into commercial property nowadays? So for the first time, a lot more residential investors are coming into the commercial property space. Before I got into commercial in 2012, so 10 years ago, and back then it was like a secret club. You know, if you didn't invest in commercial, you know, people didn't talk about it, right? And you only got into commercial because you keep bashing on the door and someone told you about it. And um, and you got in, you did some investments and then it sort of rolled on from there. Now it's becoming more mainstream. You know, accountants and lawyers are recommending it to their client. Financial planners are recommending it to their clients to invest in their self-managed super fund through commercial property or that they, you know, if they need, they're too negative in their cash flow when they have a resi portfolio to invest in commercial to get some cash flow so it's become a lot more mainstream and we're seeing a lot more residential investors coming into the commercial property space so um let's just talk about commercial property so people might not fully understand what it means what is commercial property the definition of it so the definition of commercial property is that it is your, your warehouse, industrial properties, plus your retail shop fronts, you know, your cafes, your hairdressers, your dentists, uh, your office spaces where you might go and see your accountant, your financial planners, or uh, somewhere that you know, um, even might be a government office you go and visit, right? NDIS, disability services, all of those things are considered commercial. Okay. Now, what is not considered commercial, a lot of people are, are confused about is things like boarding houses or uh or things that has uh, your, your traditional uh, where they have sort of backpacker uh, accommodations okay. or in some ways motels and, and, and hotels are traded so separately from the commercial, the, the general commercial space. Okay. So um, what, what is the big appeal then of commercial property? Because I'm actually thinking to myself, you know, where I live, um, uh, our uh, local shopping area is now packed every morning of all those workers who used to go to the CBD and who are now working from home. And all those shops along there, the coffee shops, the, the news agency, they're all doing a lot better business because of the, the post-pandemic trends in the workplace and, and in the labour market. And I figure all those places are now worth more because they can just produce more income. Is that true? Absolutely. It's a, commercial property works on supply demand. So it's not as sensitive to interest rate rises as most people think, because residential it is, you know, when interest rate goes up, 
that the property price comes down and then vice versa. But in commercial property, it's worked on supply and demand. So at the moment, because of so much residential investors coming into the market, there is more, more demand and less supply. There's probably four times demand to supply. So what that, what that equivalents to is that the returns does keeps going down, <laughs> the value keeps going up. But one of the big things that happened during the pandemic is that it made people realize they, they need to shop local. Like their local stores actually have everything they need. So people no longer traveled to places to get specialty goods. They started shopping locally, going to the local cafes and supporting local. And as a result, uh, on-flowing result, these, people, these businesses have boomed and more people working from home, more people moving into suburbia or even regional have now started to push up the rents and on-flowing effect value of the property goes up. Mm. Uh, what are banks like lending to investors in commercial property? Banks love tenanted properties. So they they don't like properties that are vacant because they feel in this current market, they don't know when they're going to be getting the income and they're looking at the, the, the investor to service a debt. So that for them is not secure. So they love tenanted property. So you've got a tenant that might be a bakery tenant, a dentist tenant, uh, any of those, your local shops that you see around your area uh, that's been there for established history, you know, five, seven, 10 years, and they're in the middle of a lease and they're in the middle of another five-year lease. Banks love those. They write those deals every day of the week and they give really favorable loans and really favorable rates. Okay, so if you look at commercial lending rates compared to residential, what's the interest rate differential? Uh, it used to be, believe it or not, when, when we uh, first in 2012, somewhere around about a percent to one and a half percent. But today, the difference is most half a percent. Mm. So on a on a standard property, uh, you're looking at somewhere between three to three and a half percent in interest at the moment in this market. Uh, and I think most resi loans are going to sit somewhere around the high twos, the early threes. So we're sort of about a quarter to half a percent difference. Okay. Um, tax deductions, uh, are they bigger with a commercial property than with a residential investment property? Slightly different, but those things you can't claim in residential, you can still claim in commercial. So, you know, going up to see your properties and, and sometimes that there's deductions on sort of your fit outs and, and outgoings that can't be deducted in residential. You can still, still do that with commercial. And also uh, you can still do depreciation in commercial like you do in residential. Okay. What about GST? Is there any GST differences between residential and commercial? Yeah, that's the, probably the most significant difference. So a, a tenant to commercial property is what they classify as a going concern, which means it's GST exempt. But in order to take advantage of that, the purchaser, as well as the seller, but the seller normally is anyway, have to be registered for GST to get the exemption. And then if you are purchasing a property, say a couple of million, and the rent's over 75000 you have to charge your tenant GST, and you have to then on pay the GST back to the government. But that, but, that, but that means that any GST that you pay, you get back as a credit. Absolutely. So any GST you pay on your outgoings, our refurbishments or capital works you get as well. So it's a bit more accounting compared to your residential. Uh, maybe sometimes you can't use a spreadsheet anymore. You'd have to migrate to MYOB. But uh, certainly you know, at the end, you get more cash flow in your pocket. Okay. Um we, we often hear people in your industry talking about the like the average yield on commercial property. What is that average yield now for commercial? So that's definitely changed and compressed a lot since the, the 
pandemic. So what we're seeing now in metro areas, so for example, Melbourne, Sydney, we're seeing between five to 6% yields on office space uh, and retail space properties. We're seeing somewhere around three to 4% yields for industrial properties in Sydney and Melbourne. Uh, out in regional areas, like uh, where we're talking about regional Queensland, New South Wales or Victoria, where anywhere is between around six and a half to seven and a half percent in terms of a yield. And when you're looking at Brisbane, Gold Coast, Sunshine Coast Strip, they've had a lot of boom during that time. Uh, and they're sitting somewhere around the five and a half space. Okay. Um would you be cautious about investing in office space nowadays because of the work from home trend um, and the fact that a lot of our landlords are kind of aren't in the same strong position when it comes to their tenants? I think you know, it's still it's a renter's market right now if you want to be renting in the CBD, right? They're giving amazing, uh, amazing incentives. Like, so on a five-year lease, you could be getting a year rent-free. Right, because that's where the the market is. There's not a lot of people want to rent, and also you know something that there's probably a, a twenty to thirty percent discount on rents as well, because again it's a renter's market. But I think that if you are in a position to buy right now an office space, I think it's actually a great investment. But provided you can tolerate the risk, right? If you can hold for the next two to three years and let the market come back, let people get used to, you know, that hybrid working, smaller office spaces, but, you know, people working half a week in desk, you know, hot desking and all of those co-hubs, working hubs, I think office space will come back to its vibrancy. And it's sort of like a bit of a, a circle, sort of at the moment, they're pretty much at the bottom of the market and they will rise. And I think whoever invests in commercial space right now, they're going to have capital gains in the future, two to three years time. And that's going to be quite significant when the rents jump back up. Yeah. Do you think two things, in my head, I think two things could happen in CBDs. One is there'll be a lot less new building because of the oversupply, because there's less demand. But also, do you think a lot of office space could be converted to residential, which will also help your supply scenario tightening up over the next few years? I do actually think that in in fringe, uh, fringe CBD areas, a lot of those could go into a residential space. So they come into residential loft apartments. Mm. So a lot of them might be the old um, post office building or the old NAB or bank buildings, which mm. is heritage listed on the front. And they can't really change that, but internally they can create quite a few levels of mm. apartments. And it actually creates very convenience for people to, to access universities and work. Yeah. Are you seeing any incidents of people maybe buying a retail premise that, and like the old Victorian ones always have accommodation above and they're actually renting the bottom out to a business and maybe doing Airbnb in the apartments above and getting multiple income coming from it? Well, I always um, advocate for multiple income or finding ways for multiple income. So with something like that, you know, that there's car spaces they can rent out because people who live in the city most of the time are tramming it. So mm. they don't really need it. Um, if they actually can, uh, the investor can create a separate entrance. The main thing with those things is entrance ways and access yeah. to amenities, right? So if you can get bathrooms upstairs, bathrooms downstairs, entrance from the back to upstairs, you can definitely Airbnb. It's just a bit of rejig. I love mm, that. That's right. All right. Thanks for joining us, Helen. Um, and uh, I, I guess the, the, the bottom line is 
over time, we're going to see some changes, but you think commercial property is going to be pretty strong for the next few years? Traditionally, commercial property continues to grow for two years past when residential stops. Mm. And a commercial property is going to fare pretty strong because it's going to give you cash flow straight up. And in a time where we need a lot of cash flow, most people are going to gravitate to the cash flow rather than buying a value asset. Yeah, great stuff. Thanks for joining us, Helen. No worries. Thank you. And before I go, let me remind you, on Wednesday, we have another one of our small and micro cap conferences. It's on Wednesday. Have a look at the link on the screen right now and make sure you join us for this where CEOs and MDs of small cap companies talk about their companies and what might happen in the future. Once again, see you on Monday night.